Again, let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Father, you have given us the best dinner invitation of all time when you said uh, that you're at the door knocking and you want to come in and eat with us. We thank you for that. We thank you for knocking at the door of our hearts that we will be eating together with you this morning. We thank you for leading us to the quiet waters. We thank you for feeding us at your table, inviting us to dwell in your house forever. Father, I also ask that you give us the opportunity this week to show true hospitality as you have shown us, that we learn how to give it generously and joyfully without grumbling, uh, that you give us the grace to embrace the interruptions in our, in our day as, as truly gifts from you, and that we make space in our schedules, our tables, our homes, and our hearts for other people. Father, we pray for the church this morning, not just ours, but the church worldwide, as they open the doors, that they open the doors to millions of others, millions who gather together uh, as your people to eat at your table today. May we also be the family that desires to do that, that welcomes others, and that we will be defined by kindness and grace to all. Father, we pray for those who are lonely, that are on the margins today, uh, especially maybe those who are attending churches for the first time or those who may be attending for the last time, that they may be noticed, that they may be loved. And for those who have nowhere to go, we ask that you find a way to bring them home. And Father, we're asking the Holy Spirit to revive us this morning, to form us in the most welcoming and diverse community on earth, the most opening and welcoming community that the world has ever seen because of your love for us, the people who believe in your mercy, who believe in your grace, and receive your invitation to come home. We thank you, Father, for welcoming us home into your heart. We ask that you love us this week as we welcome others in our homes. And Father, we thank you again for knocking on the doors of our hearts. We ask that you come and be our friend again this week as we open up the most vulnerable and, and risky and shameful parts of our hearts to you. And Father, we also thank you for the Holy Spirit who hovers over the chaos. And we ask that you fill us this week with peace and generous attention. And that we can pray, as John prayed, to open our hearts and open our doors to you to enjoy your company with us. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new series and, uh, on uh, Colossians. It's been a long time. We've been on topics for a really long time over the last couple of years and with the pandemic and things. And uh, I always feel better and more comfortable uh, going through uh, books of the Bible, and uh, for when I did a, my my personal retreat this year, I was pretty much absorbed with the Book of Colossians, and um, and I have listened to it on, on my on my app over and over and over again, and I just it just fell in love with the book. And one of the reasons I wanted uh, Rob to read John 17 because it kind of felt like that the Colossian church was an answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17. That what, John, that what Jesus prayed for, the unity and the love of the brothers, is kind of right here in the book of Colossians. And uh, it's, 
rooted in the, in, I'm calling this, this series Rooted in the Wisdom of Christ because I really think that's what it's about. So before we look at it, let me go ahead and, and I'm going to ask you to sit back and just going to read the first paragraph. That's all we're going to look at this morning as we introduce the book. So uh, you can open your Bibles and read with me if you want, um, but uh, if you want to just sit back and listen. It's just eight verses. Paul, an apostle of King Jesus, by God's purposes, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the king's faithful family, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in King Jesus and your love that you have for all of God's holy people because of the hope which is kept safe for you in the heavenly places. You heard about this before the word of truth, the gospel which has arrived at your doorstep, and just as in fact producing fruit growing all in all the world that has been among you from the day you heard it and the day you came to know the grace of God in truth. And that's how you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, his loyal and faithful servant of the king on your behalf. It is he who gave us the news about your love in the spirit. That's how the book starts. Let me turn this on here. Uh, I got up here a list of the, of the job description of a hospital janitor. It's a long list. A lot of things. There's not one thing mentioned in this list that has to do with another human being. Not one. Uh, they, it's just a, a checklist that they have to check off and move every, every now and then with just whatever the supervisor tells them to do. But there were some psychologists who interviewed janitors and just kind of get their perspective on what their job is all about. And they heard some stories, they, and, and what they perceive, or what many of them perceive, is so much more than what's on this list. As long as this list is, it's much more than that. They heard a story from, uh, they heard a story from Mike, who stopped mopping the floor because uh, a patient was getting his strength back, and he was walking slowly down the hall, and so he just stopped mopping. Not to get in his way, not to make the floor too slip, slippery. They heard the story of Charlene, whose supervisor told her to go vacuum the, the visitor center. But when she went there, there was a family who had been there every day, all day, and they were just now taking a nap. And, and then, there, then there's, there's um, Luke, who washed the floor of a comatose, the room of a comatose man twice because the father who was keeping vigilance, vigilance there for six months didn't see him do it the first time, and he was kind of angry, so Luke washes it again. These are people who live by wisdom. This is what it means to live by wisdom. They have the rules, they have the job description, but it's dealing with other people. It's, it's matching moral skill with moral will, of bringing these two things together. It's this interaction with human beings that is essential. This is what gives us wisdom. And this, I'm convinced that this is what the book of Colossians is all about. The book of Colossians is a small book, probably one of the smallest of Paul's letters. And uh, people say, oh, it's the most profound book of all of Paul's letters. One of the most profound books about who the person of Christ is in all of the New Testament. And they're right. They're right. In my class in seminary, when we took a class on Christology, uh, 
the, the passage in Colossians and Philippians, those were like the basic texts that we looked and picked apart and, and unpacked and discovered and all that. And it was all, about, it was all about theology. But if you look at the whole picture of Colossians, it's not about that. It's about living wisely. It's all based on that, but it's not about that. It's, it, Paul's, Paul's emphasis is wanting to, to bring these people to maturity, to strengthen and encourage them to go beyond the theory, to go beyond the theology, that this means to live with wisdom and what this looks like. It's not just something in our heads. It's something of what they will live, that, they, that they live for. This is Paul's most profound purpose, that we live wisely in a hostile world. And that's what he's telling the, that's what he's telling the Colossians, how to live wisely in a, in a hostile world, how to follow Jesus in a way in a place that's often hostile to the way of Jesus. It's not just information, it's to nurture. And we're going to find words like wisdom and understanding and completeness and wholeness and fullness. We're going to find those words in the book because this is what Paul is looking for. This is what his purpose is. Not just to fill their heads with really deep theology. That wisdom is much more about growing. It's much more than just... Uh, experience and we talk about people who are wise and yes they have years of experience with you know the gray heads and all that and we think all oh, these people are really wise but and that's part of it but it also means experience with Jesus Christ and it all comes down focused to who Jesus is and who we see him and and how we are rooted in him and this is what helps us live the wise life and this I think is what what Paul is getting at that he is calling them and he's calling us now to this ancient path of wisdom, but it's a different kind of wisdom that we see in the world around us. It is a, it is a soul healing wisdom. It is an enemy reconciling wisdom. It is a truth telling wisdom. It is a justice embodying wisdom. It is a sin conquering wisdom. It's a different kind of wisdom and it's all focused and centered on Jesus Christ. So where Paul, before he jumps into that deep water of, of who Christ is and who Jesus is, he kind of begins the letter with a prayer. And the prayer is, is first Thanksgiving and then there's petitions. And we're just going to have the time to look at the first part. This, this part of the prayer that's just all of Thanksgiving. And so he does this before he jumps into the water. Before we look into the, into the book, there's always questions we've got to answer. First of all, who wrote Colossians? When did he write it? Why did he write it? And to whom was he writing when, who wrote it? Well, Paul says right off the bat, an apostle. He is a representative of Jesus Christ, but he is also sent by Jesus Christ to these people to do something. Uh, when did he write it? Well, that we don't really know, but he, we know that things were not good for Paul at this moment. They were dark. The times were dark. He was in prison. A lot of scholars think, oh, well, he was in prison in Rome, and this would be at the end of his ministry, and so he's talking to the Colossians and maybe some heresy had kind of infiltrated the church there and he's trying to correct the, the, the heresy. I don't buy that. I think this is at the beginning of Paul's ministry. I think the people that he, was missing, that he mentions in the book, the places that he mentions, is all in this area, this one area around the beginning of Paul's ministry, around the, the area of Ephesus. And so therefore, I think, I think uh, the church in Colossae is a new church. It's a church plant. It's a young church. It's probably a church of maybe only 20 people. And it's just now getting going. And, they're, and they're, they're trying to, he's trying to establish them into the roots and in the firmness of Jesus Christ. And tell them how to get going, how to grow in this area where they are. 
And so I think it's at the beginning of his ministry, and he's talking about talking to a young, maybe 20-member church in the town of Colossae. Why did he write it? Because he wants to establish them in strength and encouragement in who Jesus is, and this is their root. This is it. This is, this is Jesus who, who encompassed any wisdom that's worth having is enveloped in Jesus Christ. And to whom was he writing? He was writing in Colossae. I put a map up there so you can kind of see because he mentions a couple of towns, Laodicea, uh, Eropolis, and then he mentions Timothy who was associated, of course, with Ephesus. And this is why I see he was, he was there. Unfortunately, we don't know anything about, much about Colossae. The town doesn't exist anymore and it hasn't been excavated. So we don't know exactly a lot of the details, but we know about the areas around it. And if the areas around it are anything like, like Colossae, then we know that there, there were... <clears throat> that. Uh, that there were two inhabitants in this town. And so Paul is addressing, he calls them the saints. I'm, I'm, I'm addressing the saints, the brothers and sisters, the family, the faithful family of God. And this, by the way, is the word that is used to describe Old Testament people of God. Daniel is called a saint. And what Paul is doing is, is telling all these people in Colossae that they are like on the same level as Daniel. They're the people of God. And so he's writing them and he, in this town that has two types of inhabitants, there's the inhabitants that, inhabitants that you can see, and there's the inhabitants that you cannot see. So this group of people, uh, Jews, Gentiles, pagans, Romans, uh, they, you can see them, but they also have gods in there, in the town, if it's anything like the other towns. And these are the, these are the inhabitants that you can't see. And they believe that if you've got, to camp, you've got to sacrifice to these gods, you've got to worship these gods, and if you don't, bad things are going to happen to you. And so they come in, and uh, they've got this family of, uh, that's unprecedented of Jews and Gentiles together. No philosophy, no religious expert would ever think this would happen. But they were living together as a family. And they're going, they're worshiping this Jesus, and they're saying, Who is this Jesus? Who are you talking about? And why aren't you sacrificing to our gods? Because if you don't sacrifice to our gods, bad things are going to happen. Famines, earthquakes, fires, uh, pandemics, any of these things are going to happen to us if you don't worship to these gods, if you don't sacrifice to these gods. And so they're telling them that if you don't sacrifice to these gods, bad things are going to happen to you. And if the gods don't strike you, we will. And Paul is in prison writing this and I'm sure the Colossians are thinking, that could happen to us. This, this could happen. We're worried about Paul, but it could happen to us. And Paul will go on to explain how even his suffering is a means for the message to go out. And we will see that later on, a little bit later. But this is where the East meets the West. And so you've got all these gods worship, and then you've got Caesar thrown in, the newest god on the block, because Caesar was a deity. And then you've got the Jewish synagogues there with the diaspora. And so you've got this whole mixture, this whole mixture of, of pagans and Yahweh worshipers and, and Romans. And so, you know, if you're not worshiping Caesar, the Romans are watching you. And so this is where they're at. And Paul is saying there is one true wisdom for you, and that is found in Jesus Christ. All other great wisdoms, whatever is worth knowing, whatever is in heaven, will be found in Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling him, you worship the one true God. I worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
And this God is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's who we are, that's who we are focused on. This is the one true wisdom. And so Paul goes on to be thankful. He's thankful for two things. He's, uh, he opens up with this prayer that he's constantly praying, and most likely he is praying these Jewish prayers that he's yearned all of his life. Morning, noon, and night he prays, but now he's weaving in this God, this Yahweh, who has now made himself known in Jesus, and he's weaving in the power of the Holy Spirit into these prayers, and he says, I thank God for you in every single prayer that I do every single prayer that I make, that this is the thing that I pray for you. And I am thankful, first of all, for your reputation. He said, I'm thankful for your reputation because you have, you have this triad of virtues. Paul's famous triad of virtues of faith, love, and hope. And in 1 Corinthians, of course, the emphasis is on love, but here the emphasis is on hope. And we'll look at this a little bit, a little bit later. But he says, you manifest those three, this triad of virtues of faith, hope, and love. Mark Twain said that faith is believing something that you know isn't true. That is wrong. Faith is not believing in fairy tales. When I read the word faith in the Bible, my mind automatically substitutes trust or surrender. That's what faith is in the Bible. That we trust and we surrender. And he's saying, I thank God for your faith because you have trusted and surrendered to Christ. That is your reputation. And he says, because you love the saints and it flows out of the hope. And we will look at that in just a second. But I couldn't meditate on this this week, this passage, this one paragraph, and think about this reputation of the Church of Colossae and just how... how, how Paul was just blown away, and it, I, had to, had to come, I had to go there and think, what is the reputation of the church these days in America? And I, and I have to go, I, I'm not so sure it's so great that now we hear the reputation of the church, and I, I talk to a lot of people, and they see the church as self-righteous, judgmentalism, they see it as flagrant hypocrisy, uh, scandals, uh, anger, even violence. What a contrast to the church we see in Colossae. This is so different. I believe, it, like I read in Colossians and I'm seeing this church. Well, last week we talked about the church being a non-anxious present in an age full of anxiety. And what I get, my feeling that I get reading Colossians is that this church was a non-anxious presence. That they were manifesting faith and hope and love. And this gave them this reputation. What if, what if we did have a future? What if that we found a way to heal and not injure others? What if we found that way to live in wisdom in a hostile world? And let me tell you, it is much easier, much, much easier, as, as nervous I get on Sunday mornings, it is much easier to preach about wisdom than it is to live in wisdom. I can get up here and tell you all this and say all these things, but I can tell you it is much, much harder to live in this kind of wisdom than it is for me to talk about it. So he's very thankful for their reputation, and he's very thankful that the Word has done its work. 
He said the word is truth. The word which is the truth, which is the gospel, has actually done its work. It's produced fruit in this group of people. He said it has grown and has planted and it has produced this fruit. And the echoes that we have here, the, the picture that we have here is out of Genesis chapter 1 where the word of God does literally produce fruit and plants. And he's saying that this gospel, this truth of gospel is planted and is actually growing and presenting and producing fruit. It has done its work. This source of wisdom, this word, has done its work. It has renewed, renewed these people. He echoes Genesis 1, but he also fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. And if you remember a year ago, we looked at Isaiah, and we looked at these four chapters. And I think Paul even had this in his mind. Being the Old Testament scholar or Bible scholar that he was, I wouldn't be surprised if he was having this in his mind. In Isaiah 52, remember, he talks about when God takes his power and reigns. And in 53, the servant does that does his, his heart-wrenching work of dying and rising again. And then in 54, the covenant of Israel is renewed. And then in 55, the creation itself is renewed. And what he is telling these Colossians is, you are part of this renewal. And what he's telling us is that we are a part of this renewal. We are a part of this. What God is doing that he prophesied back in Isaiah. That we are part of this renewal to bring grace and mercy to the world. We kind of get those words mixed up sometimes. Grace is when we receive something we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't receive what we do deserve. But that's what God is bringing. And this is part of this renewal plan that we are a part of, that the Colossians were a part of. And Paul wants them to know three things in this paragraph. That they have an inheritance. That we have an inheritance. He says... In 1 Corinthians, that triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love, the emphasis is love. But here it appears the emphasis is hope. He says you have the faith and you have the love, and it springs out or flows out of hope. And I really spent some time thinking about that. That is really so true. These things spring out of hope. That if we have hope and we are sure in our hope, we can be a non-anxious presence. We can have faith and trust and surrender if we have hope. If we have hope, we are free of fear to love someone else. It's all based on the hope that we have. And the language that he uses here is not that the hope that someday I'll go to heaven. The hope that he uses here, the, the way the sentence works is that this hope has been locked away in a vault and it's kept safe for us. This future is kept safe. Our inheritance is kept safe. I don't have to go... And, and move into the vault and live in the vault so that, I can, so that I can enjoy that. The idea here is that God has kept safe this future, has got safe, kept safe this hope for us to use when it is appropriate, and then the one day it will be come out in public display, and we call that when he returns. We call that the resurrection. And that hope is secure. And if we are secure in that hope, if we know that hope, then we're free to love. And we can trust. And faith and love flow out of this confidence that we can live in a hostile environment with wisdom. That we can live even to be in a small number and be a non-anxious present because we know the truth The world, in a world that's full of lies and deceit. We know the message is true. 
We know that the Holy Spirit is working. We know that the Holy Spirit is, is working among us, that Jesus is the one, one truth. He is not part of some other truth. He is not one part of something else. He is truth. Our truth resides in a person. And when we just make him part of whatever else, part of another philosophy or part of another ideology, then we diminish him. It's not fully true. He's not just part. We think that we have to be complete in something else. But Paul is going to tell us that we are going to be whole and we are complete in Christ. I've talked to people who feel like they're not complete unless they get married. Marriage does not make you complete. I talk to people who say, well, I need to seek the Holy Spirit and, and, and speak in tongues. That does not make you complete. Fasting does not make you complete. All of those things are good. All of those things are fine. But they all must direct us to Jesus Christ, the center. Everything must direct us to that. Whether we're disciplined, even the Bible is not make us complete. The Bible directs us to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just one piece of a lot of, of a big, big philosophy or big ideology. He is the ideology. Amen. He wants us to know that they are not alone. That we are not alone. That this is a worldwide event. That the whole world is enjoying the grace of God. The, old, the whole world, the, the gospel can be planted in, in the whole, in the entire world. And when you think about it, it's the only gift that is really effective for everyone in the world. If we talked about what I wanted to give the world, we can talk about, oh, I could give them clothes or give them food or give them books or whatever, and it wouldn't fit everyone. But the word of life fits everyone. This is the one gift that is for everyone. It is this alluring and mystical beauty of grace. And people are drawn to it. They're drawn to it whether, even if they don't know it. Or even if they think they aren't, they're not supposed to be drawn to it. They are. This alluring, mystical beauty of grace is just draw, draws people in. They're everywhere around the world. And finally, he wants them to know that they have a trusted friend who loves them, Epaphras. He's one of those unsung heroes of the Bible. But he's faithful. Paul knows him and he says, I can trust him. I know he will tell me the truth. He is a man who prays all the time for the believers in Colossians, for his friends and his family. It is his prayers that anchors that letter that Paul sent. It is his prayers that anchored the gospel in Colossae. It is his prayer that keeps them going and shows them and, and produces fruit and it will last to the last day. He is one of those unsung heroes and I keep thinking, you know, I don't think we will know until the last day all the people that were responsible for the good things that happened to us. But we won't know until the last day of all the people who prayed for us. From, from the position when we, when we came to know Christ to this faith, hope, and love that we have that we can experience and all the other good things that have happened to us, I am convinced that we won't know how, why these things happened until we realized there were people praying for us that we did not know. And I think Epaphras is one of those unsung heroes. 
So they wanted him to know that they have an inheritance, that they're not alone, and they have a really good friend who loves them and prays for them. How valuable is that? We don't get to create the world that we live in, but we can obtain wisdom to live in it. And I think this is where Colossians is going to take us, that we can be rooted in Christ and we we can gain the wisdom and earn the wisdom and obtain the wisdom to live in it. That wisdom is not fulfilling some job description. That sometimes you get the feeling that it might be that we have this job description that we have to fulfill in order to get it. It's not fulfilling the job description. It's not even really a, a mental effort. Wisdom is a way of being. It is a way of being whole and complete and full. Of knowing more than just rational thoughts alone. And I, I don't want you to get confused that it is just some feeling that we get in some, some experience that some, it's ephemeral or it's, it's ephemeral or it's, a, or it's a ivory tower, that kind of thing. It's nothing like that. This is where authentic spirituality resides. It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come quickly. It takes work and it takes practice. But this is not this dualistic competition between works righteousness and grace righteousness. That's just our minds thinking. It's both. It's both. How is it both? Because it takes a lot of work and a lot of practice to remain open to God's unmerited grace. That if we don't practice it and if we don't work at it, We become resentful, we become cynical, we get closed off from grace. But it does take practice. It does take work to remain open to God's unmerited grace. That's why he uses the metaphor of the plant. That's something that grows and takes time and then produces fruit. It's not something that just happens instantaneously. So if we look through the book of Colossians... I think it's time to to think about it and take stock in your life and ask the question, what is it do I really, really want? What is it do I really want? Because these are the questions that we really need to answer to get wisdom. If it's union with love, like love with a capital L, that God is love, if it's union with God, then listen to that voice. Let it guide you to the truth because it will guide you. It will guide you to the awareness of the mystery of Christ. And we need that to just completely rewire us. Rewire us on the mental level, on the neurological level, on the physical level, cellular level, and it needs to rewire us our soul level. That we see him and we experience Christ in a completely different way. Not in theory, not in theology, but in reality. It is an ancient path that Paul is calling us to, this ancient path of wisdom. It's a wisdom that is soul-healing, it is enemy-reconciling, it is truth-telling, it is justice-embodying, it is sin-conquering, it is a different kind of wisdom than what the world offers. And it is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And we will get to that in a couple of weeks, that deep description of who Jesus is, And that's where it all starts. But Paul is calling us to this ancient wisdom. We're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Um, Communion 
is one of those things that triggers our memory, um, that helps us see things the way they really are. Um, there's something about communion that opens up our eyes to Jesus uh, at this table. Uh, Robert Weber, described, who wrote a book on sacraments, he says, God works through life, through people, and through physical, tangible, and material reality to communicate God's healing presence in our lives. He does meet us in different ways, but he also meets us in life's incidents, people. He meets us in physical food. He meets, meets us in, in the orchids. He meets us in the birds. He meets us in the friendships. He meets us in the relationship. And this is just a reminder. It opens our eyes that God can take ordinary things and make them sacred. Ordinary moments and make them sacred. And so we point to the food, the bread, and the cup. But we also point to the orchids and the, and the lilies. We point to the potlucks. We point to the receptions after the funerals. We point to the dancings at weddings. We point to all these things. And God makes all these things sacred. And that's really what the sacrament means. That's really what it means. It means to make something holy and make something sacred. He makes bread and fish holy and sacred to feed thousands of people. He takes a vineyard worker and pays them this generous amount of money. He receives a prodigal son back. This is, he takes these moments and he makes them he makes them sacred, makes them holy. So taking communion reminds us that uh, we have a choice. Uh, not just on Sundays, but every day. That we have a choice to take the bread and the cup that is undeserved, undeserved grace. Or we can pout like Jonah, who was mad that God saved Nineveh. Or we can be angry like the older brother of the prodigal son because the father threw him a feast. Or we can argue like the other workers because they were paying some, the workers the same amount. We can do those, those kind of things. Or we can receive God's grace. The church at its best is at its best when it offers healing and feeding and comforting and welcoming people, welcoming people who God loves. So we're going to welcome you to the table this morning, and we're going to do it by intention um, this morning on the first Sunday of the month. Um, and so you will take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, come up forward, and then re return to your seat. The worship team will be playing, and you can spend time in prayer, you can sing, you can just spend time just, just contemplating what it means to receive God's unmerited grace. And, and what do you really want? Do you really want to live in union with love with a capital L? Then this moment is sacred.